In this episode of Flying Smarter, I'm talking about how we get on and off the plane. But first, I'm going to take a look at sleeping in airport terminals. Welcome to episode 48 of Flying Smarter, the podcast that explores the fascinating world of air travel to help you become a smarter and savvier traveler. Let's get started. Can I sleep overnight in an airport terminal? While airport terminals aren't exactly known as places for rest and relaxation, during the day the hustle and bustle of passengers keeps these spaces noisy and alive, but it's very possible to find yourself at an airport overnight, either because you got stranded due to some sort of schedule change or weather or some sort of problem, or your itinerary simply includes an overnight stopover. So can you sleep overnight in an airport terminal? The answer is generally yes, but there are a lot of caveats. It really depends on the airport. Most major international airports have no problem with people sleeping in their terminals overnight. They understand that they serve a global market and that people are connecting between flights to and from all over the world at different times throughout the day. Some airports, like those in Singapore and in Dubai, even have complimentary amenities like reclining chairs and designated rest zones to help travelers get some rest. Some airports also have paid options within the terminal. For example, there are airports out there that have hotels specifically targeted at connecting passengers either airside or before security, or they have nap pods, or lounges that have facilities for napping. Mid-sized airports also tend to be open 24-7 and allow people to sleep in their terminals. But in the case of smaller airports, it's possible that the airport terminal may close at night. Or it's also possible that the airside portion of the terminal may close at night, meaning that you can't stay either in certain parts of the airport or at the airport altogether. In the case of mass delays, you also see some airports and airlines that have stashes of cots available for passengers, but these are for special circumstances rather than everyday passengers who end up at the terminal overnight. Stories involving the use of these cots made the news this past summer, as various problems caused passengers to be stranded at airports in the United States and in Europe. So what are the actual rules of sleeping in airports? Well, it's typically not illegal, and most airports don't have any sort of published policy, but it's generally tolerated by airports to one extent or another. That being said, they'll almost universally require you to have an onward ticket booked or to be flying on some sort of standby, as otherwise you'd really have no business being at the airport. Remember that you'll also be on airport property, and airport officials or security can always ask you for proof of travel or ask you to leave at their discretion. There's a good website out there called Sleeping in Airports that provides lots of helpful tips and advice about sleeping in the terminal. They even have guides on individual terminals, although I found that they're not all completely up to date. The website is sleepinginairports.net, and I'll include a link to it in the episode description. Did you know that Swiss International Airlines will transport your skiing and snowboarding equipment free of charge? The carrier calls itself the Skiers Airline and transports skis and snowboards for free in addition to your checked baggage allowance. While airlines will typically transport skiing and snowboarding equipment within your regular checked baggage allowance, there are a few airlines out there that are more generous. Swiss is the most notable one, but Lufthansa also allows one piece of skiing equipment with you free of charge in addition to your checked luggage, and that's except on flights to and from the US, Mexico, and Central America. 
Air Canada will also allow you to check skiing and snowboarding equipment at no extra charge above your regular baggage allowance on flights between Canada and Europe, the Middle East, or Africa. With all these airlines though, the lowest economy class fares are usually excluded from the free ski and snowboard allowance. Boarding and deplaning can be some of the most chaotic parts of air travel. From my experience, if you ask a flight attendant what the worst part of a flight is, there's a good chance that they're going to say boarding. Now, aircraft boarding is a crucial process, and it has a big impact on passenger experience, airline efficiency, and overall flight punctuality. And over the years, airlines have tried different methods and strategies in order to improve this process, aiming to minimize boarding time, reduce passenger stress, and enhance operational efficiency. In this main segment, I want to take a look at boarding and disembarkation in two different ways. Firstly, there's the actual order in which it occurs. Since deplaning is fairly straightforward, I'm going to focus on boarding here, delving into the intricacies of aircraft boarding, exploring different techniques to use to streamline the process, and talk about potential areas for improvement. The second way that I want to approach this topic is by looking at the physical methods that are used to get us on and off an aircraft. While the jet bridge is the most common, there are some other less common methods out there that are worth discussing. Let's start by talking about boarding order. Airlines have a vested interest in boarding their planes efficiently. From a business perspective, I've said many times before on this podcast that planes sitting on the ground don't make money. Reducing turnaround times at the gate allows for more flights to be scheduled, and boarding and disembarkation efficiency plays right into this. Similarly, boarding in a predictable and efficient manner contributes to an airline's on-time performance. For many of the same reasons, passengers have a vested interest in efficient boarding as well, whether they think about it consciously or not. A smooth boarding process without any frustrations or confusion contributes to passenger satisfaction, and reducing the amount of time spent standing in line or waiting for others to stow their luggage improves the travel experience. A quick overview of how airlines tend to board their planes these days. The process typically starts with what is called quote-unquote pre-boarding, although I've always had a bit of an issue with that term, since it's still boarding. It's not really like pre-boarding happens before people start getting on the aircraft, since quote-unquote pre-boarding still consists of people boarding the plane. Anyway, pre-boarding is usually available for those with special needs or those requiring special assistance. Passengers with reduced mobility and unaccompanied minors typically fall into this group, and those traveling with small children are sometimes included as well, although the rules on that vary by airline. Then, you'll typically have premium class passengers and those with status in the airline's loyalty program, or status through an alliance partner. There's also usually priority among these passengers depending on the exact class of travel and their status. Then, you have economy class boarding. In most cases, but not with all airlines, this is done in groups from back to front. Almost all airlines now have adopted some sort of zone or group boarding where they give passengers zone or group numbers rather than calling out row numbers. Then, with some airlines, economy class passengers board last. Needless to say, the exact order of how all this occurs varies between airlines. Outside of the United States, airlines tend to have around five boarding groups. This is the case for airlines like Lufthansa, Air France, KLM, Japan Airlines, and Air Canada 
although Air Canada went up to Zone 8 during the COVID-19 pandemic, but has since gone back down to 5. In the United States, airlines tend to have more boarding groups. If we exclude pre-boarding and courtesy boarding for military or passengers with small children that falls outside of a defined group, Delta and American have 9 groups, JetBlue has 8, Alaska and Allegiant have 7, United and Frontier have 6, and Spirit Airlines has 4. Now, there are also some airlines that don't follow the conventional boarding process. Ryanair, for example, just has two boarding groups. There's priority boarding, and then there's general boarding for everyone else. Southwest Airlines also has a particularly unique boarding process in which there are no assigned seats. Everyone is assigned a boarding position, and you line up at the gate based on your position to determine who gets to go on the plane first and gets to choose their seat first. I talk a lot more about the interesting Southwest Airlines boarding process in episode 31, so go check that out to find out more if you haven't listened already. So let's look at the million dollar question. What's the best boarding order? And it might actually be a million dollar question. A few minutes saved per flight can add up across an airline or across the whole industry. Most airlines use some sort of back-to-front seating, but some airlines like Lufthansa and United board window middle aisle, and some have more random methods like Ryanair and Southwest. Although, even these are different since Ryanair has assigned seating, but mostly just lets people board randomly, whereas Southwest doesn't have assigned seats, so there's some human behavior at play when it comes to choosing seats. As you'll see, there's also a bit of disconnect between what is theoretically better and what might be better in the real world. If we wanted to make boarding as inefficient and miserable as we possibly could, the way to go would be front-to-back boarding. Imagine if the passengers in row 1 boarded first, and then everyone else had to wait for them to stow their bags and take their seats. Then the row 2 passengers would do the same. How inefficient would that be with all the empty space further down the aircraft? There have been a few studies on boarding processes, most notably one from 2008 by a postdoctoral fellow named Jason Steffen, and one from 2021 by Shafa Jaffer and Wei Mi from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. These studies use modeling to compare different methods of boarding. Stefan even ran 100 computer simulations for each type of boarding to compare the results. Now, despite front-to-back being the worst option, shown both through common sense like I talked about and the modeling data, this is exactly what airlines do when they board premium cabins first. So here's an example of what I mean when I said that there's a bit of a disconnect between what is efficient or better and what airlines think is better. In the case of boarding first, business and premium economy class passengers first, even though it's probably not very efficient, they're considering things like the bottom line and the value proposition and prestige of their premium products. In other words, even though it's not the most efficient thing to do, airlines have decided that it's better to do this because it improves their premium products and rewards higher paying customers. Both studies found that the most efficient option that is also feasible in the real world is window middle aisle boarding. This means that an airline would board passengers in window seats first, then those in middle seats, and then, finally, aisle seat passengers. Now, of course, computer modeling and simulations can't completely replicate real-life human behavior, but I think the methods that are used are generally sound. They assume that the main delay in boarding is waiting for passengers ahead of you to store their bags, and I think that's a pretty fair assumption. 
Think of all the time wasted when someone is occupying the entire aisle, putting their bag in the overhead bin, and then realizing that they need something for the flight and trying to get it before putting their bag back up. Like the amount of time it takes for a passenger in the aisle seat to have to get out to let a window seat passenger into the row. As we've seen, the key inefficiency in boarding occurs when a passenger holds up the aisle, most likely to store their bag, and the people standing behind them, or further up the plane, are just standing there stuck waiting. Window middle aisle boarding helps address this. There's no order of which window passengers board first, but it should end up being somewhat randomized, spreading them out along the aircraft. Instead of the entire plane waiting for the row 3 passenger to store their bag, you might have window seat passengers in row 25, row 20, 18, 11, and 5, all storing their bags at the same time. Essentially, if you can stack multiple bag storing delays on top of each other and have them happening at the same time throughout the aircraft, it's more efficient than waiting for that kind of delay one at a time. So that's the general gist behind window middle aisle boarding and why it's more efficient. Of course, it's also not perfect. For example, it doesn't really account for families traveling together, but airlines that use this method tend to be pretty forgiving around that. But of the options that are realistically practical, window middle aisle boarding seems to be the most efficient. What about the commonly used back to front? The reason that back to front is not as efficient is the fact that passengers are grouped into blocks, those boarding zones or groups. Let's say that zone 3 consists of passengers in row 20 to row 30 of an aircraft. The problem is that it makes everyone in that area trying to get into the same space at the same time creating congestion. If there's someone causing delays in the aisle at row 20, nobody else in that group can board and everyone is stuck standing in the aisle. Now of course, this problem is also possible with window middle aisle seating, like if the first person on the plane happens to be in the window seat of row 1 and holds everyone else up but the impacts are mitigated because it's somewhat random. That's because with window middle aisle seating, if the row 20 window passenger was causing delays, perhaps the people further up in the aisle could also be getting into their seats and storing their bags as well. Now what about random boarding? This is kind of what Ryanair does with their two-group process. Both studies found that the efficiency of random boarding falls somewhere between window middle aisle and back to front. In other words, random boarding is more efficient than what most airlines currently use. And the airlines actually know this. In 2011, American Airlines switched to random boarding. It wasn't exactly random, but it was boarding based on check-in time, which was random in the sense that the boarding order didn't account for where people were seated. The director of airport consulting for the airline at the time noted the studies had shown that random boarding reduces boarding times by 5-10%, to 10%, saying that, quote, you definitely will not have 24 people in four rows boarding at the same time, unquote, which is what the back-to-front group boarding does. Alaska Airlines has also stated that their data confirms that pure random boarding is faster, but the airline has decided that the negative impact on their passengers was not worth the additional small gain in time. Unsurprisingly, random boarding isn't in place at American anymore. Even though random boarding may be more efficient, it can create confusion and frustration for passengers and for flight attendants. Even if it saves time, it may feel worse. Today, American still doesn't use back-to-front boarding, but instead has an order that kind of spreads people out with some degree of order. For example, after passengers with status and those in premium cabins or extra legroom seats, they allow their credit card holders and loyalty program members without status to board. These are relatively large groups of people who aren't all seated in the same area of the plane. 
Meanwhile, back on Ryanair, their boarding process feels a bit chaotic, but given the fact that it's an ultra-low-cost carrier, I imagine that they don't care all that much, as long as it's actually more efficient. Ryanair's boarding and deplaning process are actually much more speedy for another reason, but I'll talk more about that later. I have to chat about Southwest briefly now. Southwest's boarding method governs who gets on the plane first by lining everyone up in a specific order in the boarding area, but they don't govern at all where people sit on the plane. It's therefore hard to model because you have to predict and make assumptions about human behavior and where they'll choose to sit. That being said, I imagine that Southwest has data on this and has a good reason for continuing to use the boarding process that they have. For more on how the process works with Southwest, check out episode 31, where I discuss it in more detail. Now, you may have noticed that when I was talking about window middle aisle boarding, I used language like, it's the most efficient practical way. There are better methods out there, but they aren't all that practical in real life. Most notably, there is what studies call optimal boarding. Basically, this would involve everyone having an assigned seat and then lining up in a very specific order. Once people are on board, the order would maximize the amount of people storing their bags and getting into their seats at the same time, thereby minimizing the amount of time wasted on waiting. You can probably see the challenges of implementing this in real life though. When it comes to comparing the boarding order options, and particularly when it comes to understanding this quote-unquote optimal boarding idea, it helps to visualize how things would work. So I have a few resources to share in this regard. Of course, there are the two studies that I've cited, and if you're a bit of a nerd like me, you might be interested in taking a look through them. There's also a fantastic video by a YouTuber named CGP Grey that goes through all of this with visuals. It's a fun video to watch, and I'll include a link to it as well as a link to the studies in the episode description. On a side note, CGP Grey has a lot of very interesting videos on his channel, and I'm a particularly big fan of one called How to Become Pope. Let's move on now to the physical methods of boarding and getting off the plane. Most commonly, passengers will board the plane through a jetway or a jet bridge. It's no surprise that this is the preferred method. They lead directly to the terminal, they can be used for different sizes of aircraft, they're covered, and they're climate controlled. I probably don't need to describe what a jet bridge looks like or how it works, as anyone who's flown probably has a pretty good idea. A few things that might be worth highlighting though. I think it's great that jetways with glass walls are increasingly common. They're more expensive, but I love being able to look out onto the airport ramp. Another thing that I think is pretty cool is that some airports have gates with three jet bridges. Two is pretty common for wide-body aircraft, but some Airbus A380 gates out there have a third jet bridge for boarding directly to the upper deck. If you're not already familiar with it, the A380 is the world's largest passenger jet and the only passenger airliner with a full upper deck. Episode 26 of Flying Smarter talks all about it. There are some disadvantages with jetways though. It does require planes to park directly at the airport terminal, which limits the amount of available gates. For smaller aircraft, it's also kind of space inefficient. In the amount of space where it would take to park a regional jet and have a jet bridge, you may be able to park multiple aircraft where passengers walk out to the plane. It's for this reason that some airports either don't have jet bridges or have actually eliminated their jet bridges in their regional aircraft parking areas, even though it would be more comfortable for passengers to board and disembark through a jetway. Then, you have boarding and deplaning directly from the ground. For larger aircraft, this usually involves air stairs. 
These are the set of stairs that either gets rolled up to the aircraft manually or are connected to a vehicle. At some airports, you also have zigzagging ramps instead of stairs, which are better for those with mobility challenges. Smaller regional aircraft tend to have built-in stairs on the inside of their doors that connect to the ground when the door opens. Time to talk about Ryanair again. Ryanair flies a fleet of single-aisle Boeing 737 aircraft. Typically, these require the use of air stairs since the door is fairly high off the ground. On their front boarding doors though, Ryanair has built-in stairs that retract out from underneath the door. This fits into their ultra-low-cost model and helps them A. Save money as they don't have to wait on the ground handlers to move the air stairs, and B. Save money since they don't have to pay for the external stairs. Ryanair goes even further though. They, and some other low-cost carriers, tend to avoid jetways even if there is one available, instead opting for air stairs as they tend to be cheaper. Ryanair and some other low-cost airlines will also do dual-door boarding and disembarkation, with passengers getting on and off through both the front and rear doors of the plane at the same time. Groundboarding can happen right beside the terminal, allowing passengers to walk to and from the building. At Ryanair's home base in Dublin, for example, it operates out of part of a terminal where the planes park right by the building, but there are no jet bridges. Or, groundboarding and disembarkation can happen at what's called the remote stand, which is away from the terminal. In these cases, passengers have to be brought to the terminal by bus. Now, a lot of people don't like groundboarding and disembarkation, and I get why. It's loud, sometimes it's windy, and it exposes you to whatever heat, cold, rain, or snow that's outside. Aviation geeks like me, though, tend to love it. You get great views of the aircraft and of other aircraft, and the bus rides often provide fantastic views as well. Now there's one other method that I want to talk about that's pretty uncommon these days, but I happened to experience last year. This is the mobile lounge, or the passenger transfer vehicle. If you don't know what it looks like, picture a combination of a jet bridge and a bus. It can connect directly to an aircraft door, and then drive around the airport to connect to a terminal. It allows planes to park at remote stands away from the terminal, but eliminates passengers having to step outside to get on and off a bus. These were more popular in the past, but are only in use at a few airports these days, like Montreal Trudeau International Airport. They're also in use at Washington Dulles International Airport, but more as a transportation method between terminals rather than as a boarding and deplaning method. And you'll be able to find out more about my experiences with these mobile lounges by following Flying Smarter on Instagram, where I'll share more details over the next two weeks. That brings us to the end of episode 48 of Flying Smarter. That means that episode 50 of Flying Smarter is coming out in a month. I have some fun announcements planned including the chance to win prizes. Our December episodes will also have a year in review kind of thing where you'll hear from Flying Smarter's guests from throughout 2023. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media so you don't miss out on what we have planned for our 50th episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll talk to you again soon. Mm -hmm.